Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Proposition 30 looks like just the kind of progressive initiative that California would put forward, speeding along the transition to electric vehicles. We ask why its environmentally-minded Democratic governor and its teachers' union are against it. And spare a thought this evening for parents dealing with their cranky, sugar-addled kids— Exhausted from a night spent extorting their neighbors for candy, a more interesting holiday with much better food begins tomorrow. But first... Suddenly, after a month of nasty runoff election campaigning and a nail-biter of a vote, Brazil's leader was revealed. Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, a left-wing former president, beat the incumbent Jair Bolsonaro just. Lula, as he's widely known, will take the helm on January 1st bringing a program of reforms aimed at undoing lots of Bolsonarismo, the hard-charging, controversy-courting, Amazon rainforest-stripping ways of Mr. Bolsonaro. The departing president has been ominously quiet about the outcome so far. But even if he accepts his loss gracefully, not at all certain given the seeds of electoral doubt he's been sowing for months, Lula has a tough job ahead. Mr. Bolsonaro's party still has plenty of power in the legislature, and the followers of Bolsonarismo may yet have more to say about their razor-thin loss. When the results were final, it was clear that Lula had won with 50.9% of the vote to Bolsonaro's 49.1%. Sarah Maslin is our Brazil correspondent. This is the tightest margin since Brazil's return to democratic elections in 1989, and it's also the first time that an incumbent has failed to win re-election. And so what does this Lula victory mean for Brazil, do you think? Lula's victory offers some hope to environmentalists and indigenous groups after deforestation in the Amazon rainforest really spiked under Bolsonaro. It also offers relief to Brazilians concerned about Bolsonaro's assaults on the country's young democracy. Lula said in his victory speech, we're telling the world Brazil is back, which was a message about how much of a pariah Bolsonaro has become globally, particularly because of his impact on the Amazon rainforest. 
And so in a sense, this was more about an anti-Bolsonaro vote than a, than a pro-Lula one. Yes, absolutely. The selection really was about which candidate voters disliked the least. That said, an important part of Lula's victory was his support among poorer voters who have good memories of the social programs launched by his government in 2003 to 2010. And it's these voters who have really suffered the most from inflation after the pandemic, and they're still not feeling the kind of economic recovery that Brazil is just starting to see. Before the vote, I went to a poor part of Minas Gerais state and spoke to people in a city called Montes Claros. In a favela, one woman, Gianni, told me that everyone there was keen to vote for Lula. She said that Lula gave people economic opportunities. They gave them the chance to buy a house, to even buy a car. And she asked, sort of laughing, you know, what has Bolsonaro given us? Lula Things are more expensive now. Things are harder now. She said over and over again, it's Lula, it's Lula, we're Lula. Enough of Bolsonaro, enough of poverty, enough of corruption. She said she and her neighbors weren't swayed by Bolsonaro's heavy-handed efforts in recent months to give money to the poor. He expanded a monthly cash transfer program known as Auxilio Brazil, opened a new credit line, did a kind of debt reduction program. But neither these people in the favela in Montes Claros, nor a group of very poor people I spoke to in Cana Brava, a rural hamlet about an hour and a half north, said this would be enough to convince them to vote for Bolsonaro. They said that they really saw through these efforts. They believed it was just because of the election that Bolsonaro was spending money on poor people. And so now that Lula has won, how have Brazilians responded? Well, Lula's supporters, of course, are totally jubilant. In Sao Paulo, Lula's supporters went out and packed Avenida Paulista, this sort of wide avenue that has become home to a lot of political demonstrations and really has been dominated by Bolsonaro in the last four years. It filled now with the red of Lula's Workers' Party and with people you know, crying and singing. Feeling a kind of great relief at this stunning comeback for a man who just a couple years ago was in prison. Lula couldn't contest the last election in 2018 because he had been convicted of corruption following the Lava Jato or, or car wash scandal. His convictions ended up being annulled by the Supreme Court in 2021, and he got out of jail in 2019 and ever since has been on the campaign trail. But Lula's legacy is really tainted in the eyes of, of many Brazilians. Which is exactly how Mr. Bolsonaro and his supporters w wanted things. I mean, how have they been taking this outcome? 
So Bolsonaro spent the afternoon and evening of the election in the presidential palace. He has yet to say anything publicly about the results. And I think a lot of his supporters are you know, waiting to hear from him to know how to react. This is a guy who has been sowing seeds of doubt about the reliability of the electronic voting system for months now and suggesting that if he loses, he's not going to accept the results. He recently sort of stepped back from that, saying the other week at the end of a debate that whoever gets more votes wins, which was the kind of closest he's come to saying he would actually accept the results. But then on the other hand, members of his campaign engaged in this kind of clumsy and ultimately unsuccessful last minute effort to delay the election on the grounds that some radio stations in the northeast of the country, which is a more Lula supporting region, were not playing Bolsonaro's campaign ads. And so you see this kind of pull and push from his campaign and from him. And I think, you know, among his supporters, there's definitely a sense of, of anger and disbelief, in some cases, resignation, but also in some cases, this kind of tense waiting to see what their leader says. And that's a tension that we've seen kind of throughout the runoff election. So the final stretch of the campaign since October 2nd, the first round of voting, really ramped up all of the tendencies of the campaign in general. It was dominated by smear tactics trying to win over undecided voters. President Bolsonaro cast Lula as corrupt. Lula painted Bolsonaro as not caring about poor people. And their campaigns just really took fake news and ran with it, launching attack ads that insinuated Satanism, cannibalism, pedophilia. It was really kind of everything in the kitchen sink. Bolsonaro revela que comeria carne humana. So is that unusual? Would you say this was a, a, a nastier campaign than Brazil is used to? I think this was the dirtiest campaign that Brazil has had in certainly its history since democratization in 1985. Prosecutors received more than 2,000 reports of companies illegally pressuring their employees to vote for one of the candidates, usually Bolsonaro. And on election day itself, yesterday, in what appeared to be a political move, federal highway police set up hundreds of roadblocks to stop buses and vans and other vehicles for minor traffic violations. This was ignoring explicit orders from the head of the electoral court against such operations. And it appears that a disproportionate number of these roadblocks were in the Northeast, which is where Lula's support is highest, which led, of course, to cries of voter suppression. And it didn't help that the head of the federal highway police encouraged his followers on social media to vote for Bolsonaro, though he later deleted that post. So on the basis of that, it's, it's Lula who could most plausibly claim voter suppression, some, some fiddling in the numbers. I, mean, I guess the question is, uh, once this win becomes accepted, how easy will it be for, for Lula to govern a country that's polarized? Lula made a point in his victory speech to promise that he would govern for 215 million Brazilians, not just for the ones that voted for him. I think we really have to take it day by day in the next few weeks. Bolsonaro has yet to say anything. And if there's one thing we've learned from him, he's very unpredictable. But assuming that 
this transition does happen and Lula is able to take office smoothly on January 1st, this polarization in society is going to linger. I mean, Lula won by just around 2 million votes, a tiny razor-thin margin. And Congress is now full of Bolsonarista allies who were elected in the elections earlier in October. And so when it comes to Lula's policy proposals, he really is going to have to build alliances to get things done. And, you know, in particular to do his top priority, boosting spending to alleviate poverty, which is going to require some pretty tricky economic reforms and changes to the Constitution. I mean, all in all, governing is going to be so much harder this time around than it was when Lula took office in 2003 amid a commodity boom and a political situation that was tense, but not nearly as much as it is now. And so, you know, Lula is celebrating victory now, but he knows that he has a lot of work to do ahead. Thanks very much for joining us, Sarah. Thanks, Jason. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The state of California has lofty ambitions to get greener, and this year it banned the sale of new petrol-powered cars from 2030. That measure was led by the state's governor, Gavin Newsom, who styles himself as an eco-friendly politician. But there's one green initiative for the Golden State that he's dead set against. I need to warn you about Proposition 30, one company's cynical scheme to grab a huge taxpayer-funded subsidy. Don't be fooled. Prop 30's been advertised... The ballot initiative Mr. Newsom is opposing in that ad would tax the rich to help pay for the transition to electric vehicles. It's a seemingly odd choice for a friend of the environment. But Prop 30 has proven controversial and created some strange bedfellows. Prop 30 is a ballot initiative that Californian voters are going to consider on November 8th. It raises about three and a half to five billion dollars in taxes by raising the tax rate on high earners, people earning more than two million dollars a year. And that money would be used to fund the transition to electric vehicles by offering rebates to people who are purchasing EVs for charging stations. And also the money would be used to help fight fires. Alexandra Suich-Bass is our senior editor for Politics, Technology, and Society. The state's Democratic Party and a couple of mayors have endorsed the ballot initiative, but it's really a debate that's worth watching because Gavin Newsom, California's governor, who's a Democrat, has come out in opposition to the ballot initiative. He's joined forces with the Republican Party and the Teachers Union and has been fiercely critical of Prop 30. 
So why is it that a famously green state Democratic governor would be on the side of Republicans with this one? Well, it's such an interesting thing to consider because on the face of it, Prop 30 seems so innocuous. Who would be against raising money to fight fires and transition to a greener economy? But in fact, it is contentious. And there are a few reasons for that. One controversy is the role that Lyft, a ride-hailing firm, is playing. Lyft is by far Prop 30's biggest backer. California has a regulation that's requiring ride-hailing firms to transition to electric vehicles and by 2030 will require about 90% of vehicle miles traveled to be done in electric cars. So the criticism is that Lyft is trying to get taxpayers to help it go green. Don't be fooled. Prop 30 is being advertised as a climate initiative, but in reality, it was devised by a single corporation. People like Gavin Newsom are suggesting that this is about a corporate money grab to help use taxpayer funds to transition to electric vehicles. Put simply, Prop 30 is a Trojan horse that puts corporate welfare above the fiscal welfare of our entire state. Others say that Prop 30 is overkill, or at the very least redundant. California has already allocated about $10 billion to help fund the transition to electric vehicles, and there will be federal money going to this as well through the Inflation Reduction Act. But you said the dissent also included the teachers' union. How do they figure in? The new tax would bypass the state's general fund, which pays for education, healthcare, and other basic services in California. So it would create competition for taxpayer dollars between electric vehicles and then other essential services that California might need. So that helps explain why the teachers union is against it. The other thing that Prop 30 highlights is the potential downside of direct democracy in California. The state allows citizens to bring forward ballot initiatives if they collect enough signatures, but that can sometimes hamstring lawmakers' ability to set budget priorities. If Prop 30 passes, some are concerned that it could also encourage other wealthy corporations to try and game the system and bring things to a vote by citizens that would directly affect those companies' financial interests. And so what do voters think of this so far? Right now, it has support from a lot of prospective voters. It would need a majority in order to pass. But it seems that Governor Newsom coming out against Prop 30 has killed a bit of enthusiasm for the ballot initiative. I think there's an existential question that Prop 30 raises for California, which is how much it can continue to tax top earners and remain competitive versus other states that have no income tax at a time where people are in increasingly willing to rethink where they want to be based. Already, California has the top income tax rate of any state in America. It depends heavily on top earners to fund its budget. And its green initiatives exact a cost not just on high earners, but also on average Californians. The state has the highest petrol price in the country. Californians pay about 56% more than the national average. And so I think there are two questions that prop raises. One is how much the state can continue to tax high earners. And then the other is to what extent it should prioritize green initiatives over other priorities for the state. But ultimately, the risk here is to drive away the high earning, let's call them cash cows on propositions like this. That's right. About 35,000 people earn $2 million or more a year in California. They pay about 33% of income tax. And so 
continuing to retain and attract high earners is essential for California. And it may find it harder if the tax rate is so high. Already, we're seeing early signs that Californians are getting fed up with high taxes. In 2020, which is the most recent year we have tax data for, we saw a net outflow from California of about 260,000 taxpayers, which is up about 58% from 2019 and represents about 1% of total state income tax collections. California right now is experiencing a very rosy economic time as the stock market had been climbing and had record revenues, a record budget. But losing some of the people who will fund California's budget priorities becomes an even bigger dilemma when times are more difficult. And we're going to see it with tax collections being hit because of the stock market downturn. This is an issue of great importance to California as it considers both who it wants to attract and how it will continue to maintain its spending priorities in the years ahead. But California is also defending a record of being really quite ahead of the game when it comes to green issues. It's still interesting that a Democratic governor would come out against an initiative like this. There's a question about what Prop 30 means to California, and then there's a question about what Prop 30 means to Gavin Newsom. He has come out pretty vigorously against Prop 30 in part, in my estimation, because of his national ambitions. It's likely that he's going to run for president if Kamala Harris or Joe Biden decide to stand down. And presiding over another tax increase on high earners would really not resonate with voters outside of California and would also be a hit to his potential donors who are high earners in California. But I do think Prop 30, regardless of whether or not it passes, is worth watching because of what it says, both about a very ambitious governor in the Golden State and also what it says about California's future competitiveness and the priorities and values of California voters. Alexander, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Halloween is a giant racket. When John Fasman isn't hosting this show or appearing on our other podcasts, he writes a column about food for The Economist, a venue in which he has expressed some very strong feelings about Halloween. Kids dress up in costumes, go around banging on their neighbors' doors, demanding candy. The candy that they demand is, of course, the same stuff you can buy at any grocery store. Corn syrup, confections, they're hideous. They ensure that your kids will come home in a sugar rush and they'll be violent and then collapse. It's an anodyne holiday. Halloween's origins are Celtic, and its rituals, which originally included costuming and lighting bonfires, are designed to ward off ghosts. But there is another holiday celebrated on the two days after Halloween all over Latin America, but probably with the most fervor and passion in Mexico, And its origins are designed to, in effect, welcome ghosts and fondly remember those who've departed. Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead, is emphatically not, not Mexican Halloween. There is some overlap in the rituals. Dia de los Muertos also involves skeletons, ghosts, and costuming. But it's a completely separate holiday with completely separate rituals and much, much better food. 
Dia de los Muertos grew out of an Aztec festival, and it became sort of a syncretic holiday when the Spanish arrived. They brought this ritual into the Christian calendar, merged it with All Saints Day. The rituals include, of course, a huge parade. Families will build ofrendas in their houses and in public, and these are altars designed to remember and welcome the dead. Families will often go to the graves of their departed beloved ancestors and essentially have a party, have a picnic there, and just spend time remembering them. Well, there are a number of rituals involving food. Not all of this food is eaten. You may have seen the little calaveras, which are decorated skulls made from sugar. These are decorative. These are not to be eaten. But also the food varies from family to family because part of the ritual is putting on the ofrenda the favorite food of the departed. So if you had an uncle who really loved roast pork or baked ham, you'd make that food for him, but you don't eat it. The living just enjoy the smell. And it's there to commemorate, to help you more fondly and accurately remember those who departed. Now, Mexico, of course, has incredible culinary diversity. So the precise foods that are eaten to celebrate it vary from region to region and often town to town. But the one thing that unites almost the whole country is a particular type of bread called pan de muerto, or bread of the dead. This is an enriched bread similar to a brioche or, if you know, Jewish challah, except it has butter added to it. It's flavored with orange zest and orange blossom water or aniseed and sesame. What makes it really distinctive, though, is that before baking it, you take a couple of pieces of the raw dough and you stretch them, elongate them into bone shapes. And then once you've shaped your loaf into a boule, you drape these bones over the top. And so it's baked with this decorative bone structure, this bone cross on top of it. When it comes out of the oven, it's brushed with melted butter and dusted with sugar. And it's this very rich, very sweet, very comforting bread. It's just delicious. Pan de Muerto really brings home the idea that Day of the Dead is a serious holiday, but it's not a somber one. This food, Pan de Muerto, in its sweetness and its richness and its comfort, really brings home the idea that life is sweet and rich and comforting. While the people you're remembering may not be here anymore, it was really a privilege and a pleasure, just like this bread is a pleasure to have known them. Death is a natural part of life. Even though people aren't here anymore, we can remember them fondly and happily. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, 
award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.